0: Good morning, everyone, and Sabbath peace to you. There's a lot more people when I last turned around, really, so it's, it's good news. I thought that people knew that I was speaking, and so thus the smaller crowd. Um, you have a chance now if you'd like to depart. Um, so I was always a privilege to be here and share a word with you, and um, I just want to acknowledge, as I tend to do when I ever enter a room, that um, we come from all different types of weeks today, um, ranging from ecstatic to discouraged. And, um, you know, this is, this is the house for that, for all those, for all those experiences. And I'm glad that uh, you're here today with us. Uh, today I wanted to, to talk about something that's been uh, a hot topic in the news for some time, and that is... Uh, and it's nothing new, but it's even more hot than ever. And that is the idea of division. Uh, it's a topic that's in the forefront of many of our minds. Uh, it's in the news quite often. Um, it's it's being we're flooded with the idea of division at this point. But it, not only is this a, a corporate a corporate thing or a, na- a national national thing or a um, international thing, but rather it's also something that is hits very close to home in our families sometimes even in our own minds that there's a division between uh, our own thoughts and there's a schism there Uh, it's near and dear to many of our hearts the idea of division and I I, I believe that we all strive for harmony and unity it's hard to get there Um, there's different types of division some of that and that's not always negative Um, there's positive division if you need to delegate tasks It's good to divide, Um, but there's negative, and and negative division really results from a resolution to a power struggle that actually oppresses somebody else. So it's a resolution that someone has come up with, often with good intentions, but it actually oppresses somebody else. So before we continue any further, please join me in in a word of prayer. Gracious Father just take a moment uh, to acknowledge your presence here, your spirit, and we ask that you would be our vision, and you would guide us in your word, in Christ's name, amen. So division is not new amongst uh, people groups, Um, and one of the things that the Bible often talks about is the division of the nation of Israel. Uh, The Jewish nation was greatly divided for many portions of the Bible, Um, And particularly, it was divided during uh, the time of Jesus. And Jesus came in a nation that had many different ideas of how to resolve what was happening. They were oppressed by the Roman Empire. They were oppressed by the leadership. Uh, And there were different uh, competing ideas as to how to deal with that, how to get the nation to where God intended it to be. And so you have uh, four groups that are really spoken um, primarily in the Bible uh, about uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. Pharisees and Sadducees, perhaps you've heard of that before. The Pharisees were a group that uh, took a, a very literal route in understanding the law and believed that if we followed this to a T, that God's power would come through it. Then the Sadducees were more pragmatic in dealing with the oppression that they were experiencing. And believed that if they could compromise with the Roman Empire, uh, there could be change. Then you had the Zealots. And the Zealots were those who believed that, uh, by any means necessary, we must change. We must be transformed. We must get our nation uh, liberated. And so that meant even violence at times. And then Essenes were those who believed uh, one one. Uh, primary belief of the Essenes was, if we can escape, go out, separate ourselves from society, we would find peace and liberation. Sound familiar to you? I mean, those exist today. Um, yet they were all missing the mark, according to Jesus. And what's interesting, if you if you think about power struggles, think of your own power struggles, and I invite you to think about power struggles again those that are within your household and those that are within the nation and within the world. And, and power struggle is really unique at this point of human experience because we're so connected. Right now there's, there's an option that you all have to connect to the world at the palm of your hands for most of you. And because of that, uh, there's even, because there's more connection, there's more power struggle as well. Because now, Cultures are talking to each other in greater amounts than ever before, and, and it's really more difficult to find that harmony. When you're among a, a people group that's basically like you are, easier, easier, but more difficult when the nation, the, in, the world is so small now. And so, what was God's answer to the Roman oppression? What, how did God respond to that? When you think about how to respond to Uh, power, the power dynamics that are in this world today, how to respond to the struggle that we're existing with leadership and all these other things. Regardless of your political stance, God offers a very unique solution in Jesus Christ. Again, the vision is negative when it results from a resolution to a power struggle that oppresses somebody else. It's easy to find a solution, but many of those solutions have negative effects on somebody else. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, did something that was very dramatic and unheard of. And his answer to overcoming the Roman rule was to send a defenseless defenseless baby during the time of Roman rule. His response was to send a man who would willingly subject himself to a shameful death. And in it, Colossians says that he disarmed, that is, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That Jesus' response to the authority that was oppressing them was to send a man to willingly die to sacrifice himself on behalf of a nation. And then Corinthians uh, 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say thank but thanks be to God who gave us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does this all mean and how is this possible? If you think about victory um, and the way the disciples thought about victory it was nowhere near what people had in mind. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved by it, it is the power of God. And for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom a pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who we believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he says this really strong statement, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men." And by no means is Paul saying, let's be foolish, um, and let's be short-sighted, and let's not be learned. Rather, he's saying that God works and operates beyond our social constructs. Think again of the things that divide you, that divide your mind, competing thoughts, Think of the things that divide your family. Think of, think of the things that are dividing your nation, your city. What are they? And just as an idea, think of, are, are you experiencing the tension right now? L- listen to what your body's saying. And where are you carrying your stress? Where are those divisions being played out right now as you sit down in church today? Um, and we know that divisions also exist within church communities. Uh, We're not immune to it. And in 1 Corinthians, that's what Paul is dealing with. Because the church there had divided themselves based on a few things. One of them was spiritual gifts. And so if you had one spiritual gift, like the, the gift of tongues, if you could speak various tongues, you were considered better and more valuable. If you... And then there was other things that were going on. So for instance, you had your favorite minister of the gospel, and that was also dividing them. So it was Apollos, it was Peter, it was Paul, and people were saying, no, I belong to Paul, I belong to Peter, I belong to so and so forth. Imagine that now. Imagine if you said, you know what, Uh, I only listen to to Todd, or I only listen to Kyle, or I only listen to Nick. So sorry, there's a guy named Kai in my at, where I work with, and I always I always call him Kyle. It's weird. So imagine, like I do, I only pay attention to Kyle. By the way, there he goes. Or Nick, where's Nick? Nick, Nick around? So maybe you only pay attention to Nick. But ima- you know those. There you go, Nick so maybe you just pay attention to Nick and and Nick is the guy that you know or maybe you don't you tune out when someone else is coming and speaking whatever the case may be (laughs) Hmm. whatever the case may be Right. whatever the case may be we tend to create these constructs of value where are they coming from and one of the reasons we create constructs and there's so many differing constructs is because the elements of fear and vulnerability, uh, that that's a, such an uncomfortable thing, so let me just hone my ideas around something that I know very well, something that's familiar to me. So maybe Kyle's more familiar to you because you come from Silver Spring, Maryland, Silver Spring. Uh, or Whatever that may be, there's a familiarity that oftentimes people gravitate to and that becomes their idea of success and value now then imagine Jesus and the ideas of success and value that he was talking about so whenever Jesus many times when Jesus was elevated he would then go and say hey do you know that I'm going to you know die soon I'm gonna be led to the cross imagine every time the leader that you wanted to elevate said look you know this is what's gonna happen I'm not gonna be around too long how difficult is it to attach yourself to that person to that, to that ideology, and so what Christ is offering is foolishness to the world. We talk about underdogs, and I know, Lincoln, uh, there was a uh, podcast about the idea of underdogs in movie theaters uh, and movies, and we talked about underdogs, and what makes an underdog story great is if, in the end, there's victory of some sort, right? But here... In the underdog story of Christ, they're seemingly defeat. And that's why Paul writes again For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. What is the weakness of God that he's referring to here? He's referring to the weakness that supposedly Christ demonstrated that he wasn't strong enough, that he wasn't good enough. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Consider your calling. Not many were a noble birth, not not many wise by human standards. Consider Christ. When you consider yourself and God's ability to work in you and to break the divisions that you have in your heart and your soul and amongst the people that you love and in the communities you serve, Christ's ability to work in your life does not depend on your status and where you come from. Look at Jesus. Where did he come from? Jesus, by all means, should have been count- it was counted out early. He came from he was born into poverty. And when he was born, you know, people do the math. And how did Jesus get born? How was he born then and not? They weren't married yet when he was conceived. So it was, it was perhaps seen as being born out of wedlock, and in that society, that was extremely taboo. Then at some point, scholars believed that his mother passed away, and now he was a widow's son. And what was the status of Jesus then? Even lower than where he started. He was poor. And then he was a Galilean, and Galileans, if, you know, if, if you've heard about Galileans, they were not even worth, teaching, according to many rabbis, that the Galilean people were just not smart enough, and they couldn't grasp, they couldn't grasp the scriptures. So why bother? I remember my mother telling me a story that uh, when she was in school in, in Brooklyn uh, some time ago, in the 50s, um, she, she me- remembers a teacher opening up a newspaper and saying, you know what, I'm not going to teach you all, because you're not going to get it. And maybe you're somebody who feels that way, that they can't get it. Sometimes there's a feeling that you can't understand what the gospel is saying, or these things that then you retreat and say it's not worth it. By all means, Jesus had nothing that was uh, uh, noteworthy. But again, Paul writes that the foolishness, foolishness of God is 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 wiser that it's that the weakness of God is stronger than anything that man can create. So why did Christ do this? Why did He enter the world and go through this shameful death to bring the playing field all level? Because at the foot of the cross, as they say, the ground is level, and so that no one's without ex- no one's with an excuse. No one can count themselves out because transformation in one's life. It is not dependent on their, their status. It's not dependent on their family, nor is it dependent on the mistakes and, and your track record. It's dependent on the power of God to work in your life. It says, For the word of the cross is fly to those who are perishing, but, those who, but to us who are being saved by it, it is the power of God. And then it says, for consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, and not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. There was nothing about Jesus' life that made him worthy of victory. And in many of us, we share the same worry. Are, Are we worthy of victory? Can God do it in me? Can God work in me? Have I gone too far? And the answer is no, because Christ demonstrates that he came as the lowest, as the most despised. And he was able to find victory. He was able to demonstrate victory on the cross in a way that people didn't expect. And so Christ working in our life will often come in ways that we don't expect. But we have to lean in lean into his work in our life. And what I mean by that is believe that God will work in ways that are just contrary to human standards. If we follow human standards, if Christ imagine if Christ followed human standards, where would we be? See Paul said some real something very interesting in First Corinthians, in the second chapter, from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 5, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and that I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and so my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power so that your, may faith, your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The Corinthian church was resting their faith on who was more eloquent, on who, was, who sounded better, who, who had the sermons that were more entertaining. And he says, look, don't follow that. Don't lean on that. Lean on the power of God, which transcends all of our human standards of success. And what's interesting is that Paul had all the right and had all the ability to speak eloquently because he was very learned and he was a scholar but he realized that it wasn't about him it wasn't about his ability but christ's ability through him god's power working on our behalf to do what we couldn't do for ourselves and when paul says consider your calling think about your calling in life and know that your true calling is bigger than yourself and it's impossible to, be satis- to satisfy your calling without God's power. So he had the ability. He had the resources. Paul had all the resources to be eloquent, to, to be winsome and charming and do that all f- and gain people's favor. But he realized that is not where he needs to rely his resources on. and so the same with jesus because if you think about the underdog story if you think about jesus being the underdog you think about and and people love underdogs my question is was jesus really an underdog and i say that uh... just thinking about underdogs uh... there's some research about underdogs which says that we have an inclination to root for the underdog if you know somebody is not favored to win the chances are that you you will start rooting for that person if you don't know the team or that player. And there's also this idea that we, for, we tend to like underdogs because we see the hard work and we, and we admire the hard work. And then there's an inclination to like the underdog because we all want to overcome odds and we're all facing some odds of some sort that we want to overcome. but was Christ the underdog? By all, by appearance, he was the underdog. But the difference about Christ is that he actually had all the resources. He had the wisdom. He had the understanding. Imagine you could read minds as the Gospels hint towards that Christ understood what people were thinking before they said a word. But God in Christ still demonstrated a humble approach to all things. And he uses resources. So he uses resources for the benefit of mankind, for the salvation of others. So maybe when you see this and you hear this, you're thinking, well, I am of noble birth and I do have all these wonderful things. Well, Christ, Christ demonstrates how to use those resources as well. And he demonstrates that, as Paul did, do not rely on those resources. Do not rely on those resources for your calling for your purpose, for your value either. Whether you have a little or a lot, Paul demonstrates that it's about leaning on Christ. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So if you're hearing this and you're thinking, okay, I got the foolishness of God, I get the weakness of God, but how does, that, how does that translate in my life? What do I do for that? One of the things I recommend to do, and this is a, a spiritual practice, um, is always consider where you're carrying your stress. Where are you carrying your stress right now? Think of difficult days during the work week or during the week and consider how your stress levels go up. One of the things that, uh, that uh, Pete Scazzaro, who uh, authors Emotional Healthy Spirituality, refers to uh, is spiritual di- disciplines and daily offices. And he says, during the day, take some time to look at your fists. Are they clenched? Take some time to open up your hands in soli- silence and solitude and think about what God is doing in your life right now. What is God saying? How can I embrace that God is sovereign right now in the midst of my stress? There's something about putting our body into action and connecting our body to our minds, and so open your hands. Practice this through this week. Open your hands in the moments of deep stress. Make it a routine, and allow God to speak to you during that time. The other thing that I recommend, because this is about also about embracing weakness and so it's taking time during the moments of weakness and vulnerability to ask God to pray and ask God what are you trying to tell me in this moment of weakness of grief and loss the disciples connected to the power of God by taking time to understand what happened they were disappointed they were frustrated Jesus abandoned them by all intents and purposes but they took time together to question, what is God doing right now? What is he trying to tell me? So it's the practice of opening your hands. It's the practice of solitude. It's the practice of asking God, what are you, what is, are you trying to tell me right now in my life? That I, you can embrace weakness, and through that embrace of weakness, God can transform, because he wants you to lean into him Again, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God, as I end, is sending Paul, who was a murderer, to be a messenger of the gospel to Christians, to the very people he was murdering. The weaknesses of God is Christ on the cross, and that being victory for all of us, that he offers for all of us. So consider your calling, as Paul says. Consider what God is trying to say to you right now. Take time to consider it. Slow down your week to consider what is my calling. In what ways am I relying on human standards and not God's power? And it's so easy to do. We do it, and I say myself, I do it continuously, where I make the gospel about what I can do to help God rather than embracing the power of God. And Paul, again, was very clear. Do not rely on your own strengths nor your own weaknesses, but rely on the power of God. So this is an invitation to spend some time in solitude to practice the idea of asking God, what are you doing in my life right now? Leaning into him and allowing his power to transcend all our values and all our divisions. So I pray that for you as I pray that for me. Thank you.